0: Welcome back to another Cardinals off day podcast. I've been Godar with me as always. My good friend, Ben Humphrey, uh, Ben, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I have to tell you though, I'm, I'm, uh, beginning to question the wisdom of a late season trip to St. Louis to watch the Cardinals play at Bush stadium, uh, Because it's largely empty nowadays, uh, for Cardinals games, which on the one hand means cheaper tickets, but on the other means, uh, a really lackluster atmosphere for baseball.
0: Yeah. Um, well, judging by the, uh, the number of people in the seats, you are far from the only person, uh, questioning that wisdom. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it is still fun to watch the Cardinals. I think uh, we have to sort of grudgingly admit uh, sometimes. So um, uh, I think we should let folks know uh, this uh, podcast uh, dropping on Thursday. We are recording this several um, days early because of some travel that Ben and I have planned. So um, there, if there's been some major breaking news in the last couple of days, we may not be hitting on that here today but uh the the biggest news as of our recording that we want to hit on um is uh is going to be uh to do with uh with mason winn we'll be hitting on that a little bit later also going to talk about the the cardinals hall of famers um uh, the new hall of famers who were inducted over the weekend um but before we get to that
1: uh ben what have you learned um i have learned that uh when it comes to Dakota Hudson, uh, I think that the media is willing to forgive a lot. And uh, we're recording this early, and he had a, a pretty good start on Sunday. And Ben, you saw Dakota Hudson pitch in AAA this year, did you not? Uh, twice, unfortunately. And how would you, you know... Put on your scouting cap. What what would be your assessment of his performance? Um, I think if I was gonna,
0: you know, uh, like on the like, you know, kind of twenty eighty scale, I would say
1: garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so like a six ERA. You know, he had like a mid fours FIP and a mid fours xFIP uh, for Memphis, but. You know, I've started seeing and, you know, our our listeners, I think, are probably in some of the same boats, but I've started seeing tweets and kind of posts about Dakota Hudson in the rotation this year and, you know, how maybe it's an audition and how he's looking good. And I think most of that is ERA driven uh, after his start against the Mets, which I, I cannot stress enough is a getaway day game. In a in a series that the Mets have won, they are not playing for anything anymore, and and so I always feel like those games, if you're a starting pitcher, you know you're trying to out quote unquote salvage the series or whatever, pretty good spot to be in because the other team seems to be as much interested in leaving town as they are in playing that game, I, you know. Yeah. But after that start, he has a three nine five ERA, which is you know, nothing to write home about. A 483 fielding independent pitching, which is based on strikeouts, walk home runs allowed, and innings pitched. And then his XFIP is 4.51, and that's based on strikeouts and walks. But instead of using the home run rate that Dakota Hudson has surrendered himself, it substitutes the league average home run rate. So Dakota Hudson has given up home runs at a higher than average rate this year, which probably doesn't surprise very many people. Uh, regardless, that's like not great. And so if, if you compare that to last year, uh, in 2022, he had a 4.45 ERA, a 4.34 FIP, which is actually much better than this year, and a 4.82 uh, X FIP which uh, is slightly worse than what he has done this year. Uh, So I am here to tell you uh, folks listening at home that the Dakota Hudson we are watching now is not any different than the one that we saw last year or the one who is not that great for Memphis. And I don't think anyone should be commenting about his potential to fill a spot in the Cardinals rotation, because if that happens, uh, John Moselock, Michael Gersh, and the Cardinals front office will have failed the organization and we the fans in constructing the 2024 rotation. And so I guess what I'm saying is what I have learned is there's a real recency bias and we need to be careful not to allow ourselves to get sucked into that vortex, uh, especially when we're looking at Dakota Hudson over the last couple of weeks and over the weeks to come.
0: Yeah, you know, um, it's reminded me a lot of uh, over the last um, kind of before this season, but the maybe season and a half before, um, you know, there were there was kind of a group of Jake Woodford truthers out there who, um, you know, because Woodford was was used really sparingly, you know, mostly as kind of a, you know, middle relief, but then kind of spot starts here and there. And there were stretches of time where he had a decent ER, you know, earned run average, you know. Um, and mostly that was just purely luck driven. Somewhat I think it was because he was being put in real, just kind of garbage time situations, you know, probably helped things. But but you know, primarily it was just luck, and all of his underlying you know, numbers always said this is not a good pitcher. And of course, you know, this season. When he did get a little bit more of a, you know, couple rounds through a rotation, you know, we we saw that, right? It's exactly the same with Jake Woodford, and and this again is another good time to, you know, go to that baseball savant page, which is all about underlying skill. You know, Dakota Hudson's uh, baseball savant page is a horror show. So, hundred um, percent with you on that, Ben. And interestingly enough, in terms of what I have learned. Um, it also relates to a Cardinals pitcher and also relates to um, maybe falling in love with a small sample size, but it's an even smaller sample size, Ben, because um, I'm here to talk about uh, Matthew Liberatore, um, <laughs> because uh, if you go back two weeks ago, do you remember that one really good start that Matthew Liberatore had?
1: Yes, the best start of his career against Randy Rosarena and the Tampa Bay Rays. <laughs>
0: You know, and uh, I certainly uh, don't fault anyone for being encouraged by that and being excited by it, Um, but man, there was just uh, such a flood of like, oh, here it is, this is, he's turned the corner and he's figured something out and there were articles about, you know, oh, the mechanical fix and the tweak and all this, and from here going forward, this is the guy we're going to see, and, you know, this week, uh he went out and had his next start and got shelled of course right and actually by the time folks are reading this he should have had another start so folks as they listen to this will have even more another data point beyond what i have as i'm recording this and so i think you know again what i've what i've learned i think well hopefully we've all relearned is just that it takes a really long time in baseball for anything to be meaningful and so um you know it would be wonderful for uh a matthew liberator to uh, you know, to make something like a mechanical adjustment that, you know, could make a difference um, and lead to some meaningful change. One thing you and I have talked about is just so odd. I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a professional uh, baseball player that can repeat, that, that cannot repeat his physical actions uh, consistently to the degree that Matthew Libertor can. I mean, his fastball speed is all over the place, not due to injury. And, you know, when you hear him kind of just talking and just uh, whether it's him or coaches, it just really seems like there's a lot of just kind of physical inconsistency in terms of what he's doing. So, you know, on the one hand, I understand a certain degree of optimism because it does seem like there's times where he can kind of tap into something and do things in a certain way and get really great results. But the fact that he can't do it consistently and the fact that obviously sometimes you know, the way that he performs, um, you know, leads to really poor results. It doesn't make me generally too optimistic about him, um, you know, as a piece. But regardless, I think he's somebody who we're really going to need to see, uh, con- you know, consistent sustained success before we can believe, um, you know, that there's been a step forward, there's been a change. So, um, you know, that's what I would say that I have learned here in this last uh,
1: last week. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really confounding, Ben, and and it does make you wonder, you know, when they when they got him for a Rose Arena, what was the internal assessment of him? Because you know he has been in the organization, he's still young, but it's it's just really confounding. You can see potential, right? But it's just it's fleeting. You know, he gives you those glimpses, and there, there's rarely been a sustained run of the type of form you would need to see for him to have sustained success. And and you have to wonder what what is the what is the block there? What is preventing this from uh you know from him being able to seize on like what he did in Tampa? And Derek Gould had that good article on STL today that we talked about. Uh, last episode where you know in the uh in the bullpen dusty blake was like this is great you you know he he was looking at all of the the advanced metrics looking at what liberator was doing so then apparently he was able to repeat that in the start but then unable to repeat it in his next start and you just have to wonder what what is going to make it so that if anything so that Matthew yeah. Liberator is able to break through and repeat that because it it's very clearly something that can happen. Yeah. But what is what is preventing it from happen happening? And it and it to me it feels like kind of a, a mental issue and perhaps a coaching issue where how do you get through and how do you develop him so that he's doing that consistently? And you know, this is something That goes to the heart of what we've been talking about for quite a while. The Cardinals have not done a good job of drafting and developing pitchers. And I feel like we could maybe add Libertor. They have not done a good job of trading for and then developing the pitchers uh, that they've traded for. I think you could include Genesis Cabrera uh, in that group, who is uh, no longer with the organization. So uh, all in all, very confusing and frustrating. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So... Well, at any rate, um, I guess uh, if we're, we're going to move on to uh, our, our first main topic today, and uh, it's a player who, um, you know, whether to to what extent we want to credit the Cardinals development, and I, I think we would agree that the on the hitting side, we do see much more positive development coming, um, you know, and these these players when they come through the Cardinals system and, and regardless. This is a guy who just was an absolute toolbox from the moment he was drafted, has uh, skyrocketed through the system and now arrived. And of course, we are talking about uh, Mason Wynn. Um, I think we were all, you know, we've been watching him since he was drafted. Uh, We're pretty, um, you know, blown away really um, by his performance in spring training this year. Um, those of us that have seen him play in the minors, um, you know, have been you know very very impressed there. Now he's up with the big team. Um, ben, I guess, just what are your what are your thoughts now that he he has uh, reached St. Louis? Uh,
1: so I have to say, you know, watching him in spring training, uh, and I, I don't want to beat a dead horse because we we talked about this uh, quite a bit. Um, but he's just—he's—he's he's an electric type of player that has the type of tools that just kind of jump off of the screen. And even seeing him in St. Louis uh, since his call-up, you know, he still has that like video game created player feel when he's running the bases or making an all-out throw from shortstop. Like he's just doing things that we haven't seen a Cardinals player do in some time right like it's just it's very clear that he has a a skill that uh that is just teeming with potential um but that being said i've tried to you know particularly at the plate I've, i've tried to temper my expectations because we we talked about uh earlier uh with dakota hudson the pacific coast league and how you know the the Pacific Coast League batters have hit. Um, you know, looking at this uh, through play on Saturday, August nineteenth, the Pacific Coast League, uh, as a league, um, was you know putting up the type of uh, numbers that are just you know they're they're eye popping. Um, but but so is all of Triple uh, where it's you know they're. They're hitting the ball very, very well. And so when you look at Mason Wynn's numbers overall, like they're in line with that absurd, uh, you know, triple play batting line uh, for 2023. And so he, he's going from that uh, to the majors, playing his home games in Bush Stadium as a right handed hitter. And so I've tried to kind of temper my expectations because. Even though he has hit very, very well, especially recently, um, I still feel like the overall very good offensive production in Triple A this year perhaps has distorted that line a little bit, and I, I think we need to give him a little bit of time to grow uh, as a major league hitter. And you know, Jordan Walker is you know an immediate and I think sobering example of someone who is a more highly touted hitter who skipped AAA, you know, but still was going from a, the, you know, double a and the Texas league, a good hitters situation to the majors. And, you know, the breaking stuff is just different. The fastballs yeah. are just different and the hitting climate overall is not as good. And so, you know, there's a learning curve there and I think we all need to kind of temper our expectations and let him, uh, you know, develop as a major league hitter um you know not i don't want to stay at his own pace but just understand that there's going to be a significant degree of adjustment there and he made that adjustment folks will also recall he did not have a great start to the season in triple a and then he made adjustments and really took off and so i'm hopeful that even if he doesn't get off to a great start we're able to see that type of ability at the major league level to make adjustments and uh put him in a position where you're really able to see his potential in every facet of the game. And so I, I hate to be, I feel like I'm kind of like a, like a wet towel, like, Oh, Hey, no, don't get excited. Everyone. Not that there's anything else to be excited (laughs) about, but you know, this is not going to be easy, but just kind of don't get your expectations too high. Just enjoy watching him and the energy he brings to the game and the tools that he brings to the game and hopefully uh that that batting production will be there by the hopefully by the end of this season although I wouldn't be surprised if we're hoping that it comes at the start of next year uh, as we get ready for spring training.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean to echo what you said it's um, the the quality of pitching jumps significantly when you get to the major leagues i think particularly the quality of the breaking balls that that you face you know goes up and and i think that's kind of the the traditional book on you know rookies and it holds up today is just you know pepper them with breaking stuff um and uh that so so that's what they tend to be attacked with the other thing i think that doesn't get um talked about as much is you know in the majors um every hitter is really kind of game planned against and I don't think that happens you know even at AAA right you know opposing pitchers are often you know they're they're kind of maybe more working on their stuff right they're um and and regardless they're just not the resources there you know they're not um, not not, new, not nearly the resources are being put forward to say here's how you pitch to Mason Wynn right? Whereas everybody who faces him now, uh, you know, like there's a a room full of quants that have figured out here's exactly how to attack him so there's uh, a lot of things that make it more difficult to hit in the majors and that's all being you know thrown thrown at him so um so yeah i'm with you i think just as with jordan walker um you know just as with nolan gorman last season and just as with you know mike trout and um you know aaron judge and you know even guys who go on to be very great hitters it is really the the rule, um, more or less, that their first go around um, they struggle. So we shouldn't be um, surprised. We should really expect that. Um, you know, it'll be a challenge offensively. Um, you know, defensively, on the other hand, uh, that you know that translates right <laughs> right away, and we've already seen um, you know even some superlative plays out of him, and I think that's the most exciting thing. Out of win, and again, Ben, this kind of um, you know echoes something that that you said, Um, and uh, I also think it gets at something that sometimes when we focus, as you and I do, and a lot of folks do, a lot on the um, you know the numbers side of the game, we 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 run the risk of giving some of the aesthetics uh, a short shrift and you know not not all weighted runs are created equal and a player like mason winn delivers such beautiful aesthetics out there you know really a, a joy to watch and just a a joy to watch uh you know apply his craft and um you know having had the ability to watch him in person on a few occasions you know definitely a player that when you see him on the field you're like wow like that is something different you know <laughs> i mean he just you know, he he stands out. He can do things there that um, you, just with your eyes. You see it and you think, um, you, you know, uh, that's you know, that's that's amazing. You know, that's that's not something I expect, etc. cetera. And so um, you know, th- those are really exciting things. And those are the things that really make me hope that um, that he can do all of those things with the bad and with those other things to add the value that, you you know, the requisite value that will be required for him to uh, be a Cardinal for a long, long time because he is just such a, you know, beautiful player to watch out there.
1: Yes. And I owe our listeners an apology. I totally called it the Pacific coast. League. I meant the international league since the reorganization of the minor league, oh, yeah. I, I was still in pre reorg mode and I apologize for that, but you're, yeah. you're 100% right, Ben, like watching me and win is fun. And it is nice to have, uh, a player like that on your television screen or at the ballpark, if, if you're going to a game in person, uh, because he's just, he's exciting and fun to watch. And it's nice that he is up uh, for the tail end of the season when there isn't much else going uh, well for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, or to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, well, I don't have a whole lot else to say. I mean, I know we talked beforehand and we felt like we were a little bit, uh, uh, kind of Chris Farley show with Mason Wynn here. Uh,
1: like, <laughs> Mason Wynn's up, it's awesome. <laughs> you have yeah. yeah, remember when you threw the ball 100 miles per hour at the Futures yeah. game? That was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Uh, th- that's all that I have to, to wind uh, down the Mason Wynn talk here today. Uh, just a lot of fun looking forward to the next several weeks getting to watch him in HD at home.
0: Yeah, well, some players who we, we have seen much more of um, in, in many cases uh, were uh, uh, put into the uh, Cardinals Hall of Fame over the weekend. Uh, uh, Jose Okindo and uh, Max Lanier were the two players who were inducted. And then, of course, David Fries was voted in, but elected not to, or chose not to um, uh, to enter the Hall of Fame. Uh, ben, why don't we start with uh, the secret weapon? Um, you know, I have to say. You know, personally, uh, the secret weapon has always been one of my favorite players. And this was going back to even his playing days. I remember, um, you know, I think the two things I would throw out there, there was always just the sort of the 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 legend around just being able to play all of the positions was just like felt like it was the coolest thing. You know, the fact that he could do that and the very secret weaponness of it. And i'll tell you the other thing that i always loved about him is he was a a switch hitter of course back in on those cardinals teams um they were literally all switch hitters um but uh he had completely different stances from both sides of the plate and uh so when we would play wiffle ball in the backyard um, i would i would do jose Okindo from each side of the plate was one of my favorite um, kind of batting stances to imitate so, those are some of my favorite kind of like early Jose Okendo uh, memories, um, just to kind of kick us off. But uh, I don't know, what are some of your thoughts on Jose Okendo, the, the player or the manager? Or, sorry, the, the player or the coach? Uh,
1: you know, something that, uh, like you, you know, we're, we are 80s kids, and I, I think of Jose Okendo as kind of a quintessential. 80s type of player um and then on top of that like a, a quintessential like whitey ball player yeah. you know and then you know him playing all of the positions that he has played and i i still remember because like he even pitched you know like around the time that i was reading the box score every morning like 87 88 he he pitched a little bit for the cardinals and i think maybe a little bit after that too um and you know that was also around the time that he caught in a game and he played first base (laughs) and and, you you know he he obviously he played shortstop and second base a lot and then that was also right around the time when when whitey would use him in the outfield and so when you were a kid and you were looking at those box scores it was that there was as much of a where did okendo play yesterday you know like yeah uh, angle to it where it's almost as if Jose Okendo helped teach me how to read the entire box score right like because you're kind of looking at you know who came in when where and and what did they do and this was of course even before SportsCenter, center which makes us sound old right like cable wasn't even really a big thing at that point in time let alone having cardinals gift on twitter putting it in your feet instantaneously as it happens right like just right. a completely different era but like i still remember when i was a kid it was like where did okendo play yesterday right like i i remember thinking that when i was reading the box score and eating my cereal um and and less people are like how old were you like what were you doing um my one of my wife's nicknames for me is grandpa so uh it started at a young age folks and um <laughs> and so that was just always fun with me and then uh the other thing for me was like the the pro wrestling st louis cardinals intersection of the will clark fight at second base uh, (laughs) featuring okendo and ozzy smith where it was literally like you know, I I'm trying to think of an appropriate analogy for the time period, and I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna mix and match my eras, but it was like uh, from a fandom point of view, it was like the Rockers versus like the Undertaker or something. You know, like. <laughs> Will Clark goes into second base. I do not like that man at this point in my fandom. And then he starts stuff with Ozzy Smith and Jose Okendo. It's just like, yeah. you know, as a kid, and, but, but then your point of reference as a kid for something like this is largely professional wrestling, but they're not, you know, it's not play acting. Like they're really going after it. And so that was my other big Okendo is like, you know, Ozzy and Jose Okendo giving up. I don't know, four or five inches to Will Clark and then just getting into it with him and like the entire Giants team. And so uh, that's my other big Jose Okendo memory as a player. Um, And, you know, something I, I mean, I can still see that fight in my mind's eye as clear as day. Um, And it, it doesn't hurt that it's posted on social media, you know, every couple of years, it seems to have some new life breathed into it, but um,
0: yeah. Well, I, 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 I will I, never
1: forget that either. That. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I'm just I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm hearing uh, you know Dre and Snoop uh, talking about uh, Compton and Long Beach getting together, and I'm uh, I'm thinking about uh, you know <laughs> Watts and Puerto Rico getting together when Will Clark went into second base, and I'm thinking he didn't know what he was getting into there. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: One hundred percent. Like I, I, you know, you get the you get the feeling that Will Clark probably wouldn't have carried either way. Um, but I, I do believe like he didn't, he did not anticipate that was going to be the result of what happened on that play. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very friendly guys, but you know, they definitely showed they didn't want to deal with that. Um, well, and you know, just getting as long as we're kind of still talking about Jose Okindo the player. And just for, cause I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who don't remember him as a player. And, um, You know just a couple kind of data points uh, about his his career, you know he he made his major league debut at age 19 so you know I mean extremely talented player right broken in the major leagues very early um, with the in in the Mets organization um, initially. And then. um, uh, You know came to the Cardinals uh, uh, first uh, up with the Cardinals in 86 and 88 was the year that he played all nine positions over the course of the year um the you know catcher was definitely the place where it was like well we're gonna get him in at catcher so we can say that he played all nine positions (laughs) in the season but he still did it so you know uh that's great but um I think now we think back so much on just the fact that you know the the secret weaponness and the versatility but you know beginning in 1989 he was the regular second baseman and you know Ben I was flipping back through his baseball reference page you you know, he was a, a a 5.4 win player in 1989 by, by when replacement, he was the second best player on the team that year behind Ozzy Smith. Um, you know, so, um, you know, and he had other good seasons, you know, you know, good value over the course of his career too. So, um, and and really for the next, you know, for basically about a three year stretch there, he was more or less the, the everyday second baseman in St. Louis. So, um, a lot of, uh, certainly, uh, you know, uh, versatility is the thing we remember most, but also a very good player and a, a, an everyday player and regular second baseman for a, a good stretch of his career as
1: well. Uh, here, Here's some more uh, fun stats of his that, like, when you're a kid, you don't appreciate. Um, but, like, looking back over, you know, when he was first announced as a candidate for the Cardinals Hall of Fame, uh, do, do you know what I said to myself, Ben? What's that? Uh, I said to myself, "This is like he's like the Doctor Thunder to Red Shandy's Doctor Pepper." You know, like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's a utility guy. He's a coach versus like an everyday player who becomes yeah. a Hall of Fame manager. You know what I mean? Uh, but 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 I don't know that that's entirely fair because when you're a coach, you are definitely having a hands-on experience. Yeah. But when when he was announced as a potential Hall of Famer, you know, like on the ballot for the the voting. Um, And I went and I looked at like all of his stats, which I had not really done. Usually when I'd gone back and looked, I had looked at the fielding stats. I hadn't paid much Mm -hmm. attention to the batting stats. Yeah. But so I went and I looked, you know, at his batting stats. And here are his walk rates beginning in 1987 through the end of his career in 1995. 17.3%, 10%, 12.2, 13.4, 15.2, 12.5, 13.5, 13.8, 13.5. 17.3%, 10%, 12.2, 13.4, 15.2, 12.5, 13.5, 13.8, 13.5 and he had an isolated power uh, over 0.091 exactly once in that time frame
0: right yeah <laughs> Like, yeah. yeah
1: there there was absolutely no reason to not throw him strike because yeah, and if not... you,
0: and if you saw his left-handed batting stance, there is a reason why he had no power.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so I that just blew me away because you know, and, and I'm not here to tell you that he was a great hitter, but he he had some above-average seasons uh, and some comfortably below-average seasons. Uh, but the walk rate to me is just an incredible foundation yeah. of batting value coming from. from the one with carpenter, you, you you know what I mean? Like really remarkable stuff, and and in the 1980s, early 90s, when players didn't walk as much, and and so just like uh just really fascinating hitting profile, uh for a player uh who broke into the league in 83 and left the league in 95 kind of right before the home run and sea league era started you you know what i mean like and so uh just very interesting
0: yeah and my other favorite stat in 1989 he he played in 163 games (laughs) so regular season games,
1: (laughs) which is really incredible
0: yeah really incredible stuff And then, uh, you know, obviously, probably, uh, I think, certainly an even larger impact, of course, as a coach for all of these seasons, um, you know, but, you know, essentially the, you know, the defensive guru, you know, literally generations of players who, you know, credit him for, you know, helping them, you know, defensively. And in particular, when they have to change defensive positions, we've talked a lot, Ben, and, you know, coaching is like this kind of black box thing that, like, we don't really. You know, we, there's not really ways for us to measure it right so it's it's not like there's numbers to look at. But just with generations of players and and other coaches and people in the organization just universally lauding the the value that Okendo has brought. There's there's just really no question, uh, you know, that he's uh, you know the the value that he's he's brought to the organization, even if we can't necessarily, you know, point to a number or something that would that you know that would uh, demonstrate
1: that. I mean, 100%, but I think you look at, you know, as someone who did what you're not supposed to do and paid way too much attention to like skip Schumacher's UZR when he moved from the outfield to second base. Like, even if you just take someone like Skip Schumacher, the the uh, transition from the outfield to second base where, you know, they were able to leverage his, you know, not a great bat, but a, a good bat at second base and, with his fielding with the help of Okendo, um, you know, like serviceable, right? right? I mean I Moneyball made it famous, right? When they were gonna they're moving to second base or moving to first base, uh, you know, and Billy Bean's like, it's 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 easy and then Ron Washington's character or, you know, Ron Washington's yeah. like, it's incredibly hard. Well first base, you know, is comparably comparatively easier than like second and so you know you look at uh you know you just look at someone like skip schumacher who is a clear outlier um yeah. but but even like you know someone like edmund or brendan donovan on the current team yeah you know he's he's clearly had an impact on them and mason Wynn, who he just talked about he had that wonderful quote this week where he said and i'm i'm gonna paraphrase it that ozzy is a wizard and Kendo is like Yoda, you know, and you immediately are taken back to Luke Skywalker with Yoda in a backpack on his back while he's training to become a Jedi, right? Like, just, uh, you know, just a very evocative uh, analogy there from Mason Wynn. And I think the amount of respect and reverence that a whole bunch of players have, and then also even Tony LaRussa, who said he's the best baseball, mo- one of the top baseball minds he's ever been around uh, in his interview during Sunday's game. And, yeah. you know, at some point in time, you have to recognize it as being true, right? Like yeah. we may not be able to quantify it here, but these oh, people yeah. who know baseball are here to tell you all about it. And yeah. I think it would be wrong of us uh, to ignore that or try to poo poo it. Oh yeah. No, hundred percent, a hundred
0: percent. So, so yeah, so happy to see uh, Jose Oquindo, um get this, Uh, recognition and will be just exciting to you know have him regularly out there with the other uh, red jackets Um, uh, and then uh, i'd love to just touch briefly on max lanier he's a uh, you know was a cardinals pitcher uh, primarily in the 1940s Um, and and he's a guy who i have long been fascinated with ben um, primarily for his role in labor relations. And if folks aren't familiar, I, I think the most interesting part of his story, um, you know, he was a, a great pitcher in those, uh, you know, Cardinals uh, teams, basically during those, uh, the war years and the the three consecutive uh, uh, teams that went to the World Series. Um, and then in uh, 1945, he uh, uh, was uh, drafted into the army. Um, and so didn't play a full season. Um, but like several other cardinals um had kind of started uh, arguing with ownership for a raise um kind of around that that time um because uh believe it or not back in the 1940s uh as throughout its in- entire duration uh cardinals ownership has been cheap <laughs> and has not had a great <laughs> track record when it comes to, to paying players and um, actually all of baseball, um, b- baseball uh, players' salaries, the average salary actually decreased from 1939 to 1945, which is kind of obscene. Um, so they really suppressed salaries at that point in time. And, you know, yes, the war was going on, but that was basically, a, a, you know, a, a tool that was used by owners to, you know, to, to get away with suppressing salaries. So, um, so it was around this time that you had... Um, uh, uh, Mort Cooper and his brother Walker hold out against the team and and Max Lanier um, who also wanted to be paid um, in in uh, May of 1946 so this is partway into the season he was one of several major leaguers who actually left the major leagues to go to the Mexican League and there was just this brief window of time where there were Uh, basically promises of riches to major league players to go play in the Mexican league, like significantly higher salaries. Um, And so he, he left um, as did many players. Uh, Ultimately when they got there, these, these promises weren't realized um, and they didn't get these paydays. And then when they tried to come back, they were basically frozen out by the league. So Max Lanier ended up not playing in the 1947 or 1948 season. Um, and he actually he sued the league. Um, he uh, or it was part. I don't want to say he sued the league. I forget the exact nature of the the, the lawsuit, but he did. He challenged the reserve clause. Um, a lot of folks kind of think that, like, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Flood was like that was the first legal action. There was a whole series of these kind of throughout the history of you know player owner relations he was involved in one of those back then um you know challenging the reserve clause back then he of course lost and then you know grudgingly basically in 1949 he does come back to the Cardinals and continued um, pitching with the Cardinals Ah, uh, through 1951. So, um, you know, very good pitcher. Um, you know, spent you know 12 years pitching with the Cardinals. You know, great numbers, and that's of course what everybody's celebrating now, and and you know, deserving of a a red jacket for his his time with the Cardinals as a pitcher. But it, it really, to me, more instructive just for his his role, and frankly, what we continue to see, which is you know cardinals ownership uh, being unwilling to pay for pitching which in, in this season of all seasons feels like a really uh you know poignant story to be back in the the forefront
1: oh yeah 100% and uh i i i thought it was interesting that uh he is making the hall of fame like the year after Comiskey. <laughs> and it it felt you know, it it just feels kind of incongruous in a way, where it's like, uh, you know, kind of the the more famously cheap owner, and then a guy who took a stand against cheap ownership. Um, right. like was one, very one on of games. yours, and then
0: one of ours, kind um, of thing. But,
1: but <laughs> yeah, 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 almost like a trade. Like, okay, well, we'll do this and this. Um, but I also, uh, I really enjoyed the anecdote uh, you know watching the speeches earlier today uh today on sunday um from his son where despite all of that he asked to be buried in a saintless cardinal's cap and they obliged so yeah. i i felt you know it, it was a fitting tribute and i think his his family certainly seemed to greatly appreciate it and I, and i think it's really good that that folks um are going to see him associated with the Cardinals Hall of Fame, and hopefully dig a little bit deeper into those mid-1900s teams that were, you know, so good. Yeah. Uh, because you know, there's a there's a lot of interesting uh, players uh, and skilled players and and performances in that era, and I I hope things like this encourage folks uh, to check some of those historical teams out. Well, yeah. And and honestly, I
0: think, um, you know, part of the story there is obviously they had that, um, uh, you know, that run there uh, of, uh, you know, those three World Series years in a row. And, you know, the very beginning of Musial's career. Right. And then, um, you know, a, a long stretch uh, where, where they weren't in the World Series. And I think it's pretty clear they could have kept that run going had they been willing to pay some of these guys. And, and you know, Musial, of course, stayed. But you look at a lot of those other very good players they had on those teams and many of them, uh, you know, left or were traded or and it's it's really was all about money. And so, um, you know, it's it's, it seems like it was an opportunity there to build a little more of a dynasty um, that that ownership just wasn't wasn't willing to pony up for. So Um, but speaking of another World Series uh, team and player. Um, Ben, I guess it's worth just mentioning that, of course, you know, David Fries was uh, uh, voted in uh, and then elected um, not to be go in. Um, I don't know, Ben, what are your thoughts on that about him being on the ballot, him being voted in, him choosing not to go in a lot of lot of things there to unpack. What are your thoughts?
1: You know, there there always seem to be, and I might be reading. Too much into, you know, kind of second and third hand information, but there, there always seemed to be maybe a little bit of um, imposter syndrome or something with David Fries in St. Louis, where, you know, he's a local guy. He knows what people think of the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, he knows about the history. He, he has gotten to meet all of these great players. And I I think what we really have here is someone, you know, maybe not feeling worthy of being in the same category or being honored in the same way as some of these all-time great Cardinals. But – and I, and I can totally understand where that would be coming from. And I think right. it's in earnest – and I think he means it to be complimentary to the people who are in that group. Um, but when you look at what David Freeze did in October of 2011, I mean, it is second to none, and not just the World Series, right? Like, I'm not even talking about the huge hits <laughs> at right. the end. The whole postseason, he was phenomenal. He was, he was, he was hitting on another planet. And um, and I will tell you that to a to a younger generation of Cardinals fans, his name is near the top. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it's for some kids, it's probably above Albert Pujols, you know, like which is yeah. I know that that doesn't necessarily shift his perspective. But for fans, you know, David Freeze and for me you know david freeze will always have a a spot in our hearts i think right um and i believe he's 100% deserving of this honor because on the on the biggest stage for like an entire month and then in the world series the biggest stage on the biggest stage i guess uh he he performed just at a level that few players ever achieve and so um, you know they they ultimately traded him away from St. Louis and he continued to have a long and productive and good major league career um, but i I think that the defining moment of his career is you know game six and I think and I hope that perhaps someday he will feel that recognizing that accomplish these accomplishments that he had as a Cardinal uh, is okay. And they are able to induct him. Cause I think he is, I think he is deserving. Um, but I, I 100% like respect his choice. If he, yeah. if he is not comfortable going through with that, that's okay. Like, yeah. you know, it's not our right to like celebrate someone, right? <laughs> like it's okay for him to say, no, thank you, and kind of continue his post-playing life, uh, kind of in in peace and quiet, so to speak, I guess. Um, and so, I I understand where it's coming from, but I also hope that he gets to a point where he can accept the praise that he deserves uh, for the performance of a of you know a, an an all-time great performance for a St. Louis Cardinal in the postseason um, just legendary stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I will still get goosebumps when I watch the triple, I still will. And oh, yeah. that'll probably never go away. And I think that's probably true for a lot of folks. And so, uh, I hope we get to a point where we can celebrate him. Um, as it turns out, it might not have been that bad for him. Cause I don't think many people were there today because <laughs> the team <laughs> is so bad and the stadium was like empty. So, uh, you know, he might not have been, all that celebrated today if he would have been inducted because there aren't that many fans going out to bush nowadays but maybe he would have drawn a few in um, oh he would have drawn yeah he would have in the st louis area
0: yeah i don't i don't think max yeah, Lanier was I, selling I think a, he would have i don't think max Lanier was selling a whole lot of tape
1: <laughs> um no i don't think so either so I, I i think you're you're dead right there
0: yeah um no i um, I, I, I agree um and uh you know, I mean, clearly if, you know, obviously he can, he can choose um, if it's not an honor that he's, um, you know, feels comfortable accepting, obviously that's, you know, that's definitely his choice. And I, I hope it's something that comes from a, you know, g- good place for him, um, you know, and, and, you know, he's still, you know, uh, you know, can feel, feel good about his, his career and, and everything. Um, the one thing I think, You know, and halls of fame are just complicated things, right? And like, you know, they're basically sort of storytelling um, devices and, you know, it's just a way to say, well, here's some people and here's some stories that we want to, to tell. And so, on the one hand, I think I'm generally in favor of telling lots of stories and you know having lots of you know people that we kind of choose to remember but I mean it does get complicated because you're also you're kind of like setting a, a bar right and you're saying well this is the the bar that you reach to be part of you know these stories that we tell. So, um, you know, I, I don't like I hate arguments about the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I hate a lot of things about the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But, you know, just the people that want to get like really scientific about that, I, I those, those arguments kind of, you know, bore me. But, um, you know, with the Cardinals Hall of Fame, I have to say, and it's a relatively new thing they created. I think it's a great thing they created. I have kind of felt like, are we uh you know, are we flooding this thing a little bit just with the quantity here? Um, you know, I think early on, of course, we had yeah. the absolute greats in there, but you know, it's I've gotten a, a little bit of the vibe of like the rock and roll hall of fame, Ben, where you know, like the they opened the rock and roll hall of fame and like you know, the, the initial, you know, classes to the rock and roll hall of fame were like. You know bob dylan and the rolling stones and i think you know last year i believe it was like all american rejects and chumbawamba i think might have been um the the <laughs> you know they. so you, you know there's just a balance there and I, i'm not comparing david freeze to chumbawamba folks okay so don't um don't hang that on me but um you know but I, there's just a little bit of a balance to be struck there maybe but regardless you know and and truly whether he's you know whether whether they list him in the hall of fame or not that's you know that's an all-time baseball moment that's you know one of the greatest world series moments ever so I don't think we have to worry about that being something that anyone uh, ever forgets so um Ben um I think we've reached the end of our uh, our main topics today um but we do have some more season ahead of us so as we head into this next
1: stretch of games uh what what are you going to be looking for Uh, Do you know what I'm going to be looking for is after Saturday's ugly, 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 ugly loss to the Mets, you know, the headline on STLtoday.com was openly critical uh, in its description of the Cardinals' performance. And, you know, this team is a lot worse than any team in the Matheny era. And fan attendance has gone down more than at any point in the Matheny era. Um, but nonetheless, I don't think that Maffini got on the hot seat or got fired until after the St. Louis media turned on him to an extent. Criticism. So I just kind of look at this with Oliver Marble wired uh, to tips of an, you know, almost like a mausoleum. Bush stadiums basically empty, like there are echoes from hits probably, you know, in a way that that there wasn't before because there's so much more concrete to directly bounce off of for the sound of, of the actual play uh during a game and you know this team i think pretty clearly quit on him even before the trade deadline and now it seems like they almost don't even want to be there and if they're gonna play like that i i'm gonna be watching because it might get to a point where it's real tough to bring him back like if it if everything just sinks so low, I I don't know, man. I what what do you think about that? This this whole thing to me it just seems like you're bringing back all of these position players, or at least you know probably ninety percent of them. You might trade some for pitching, but you're going to bring all these guys back who are playing like this for Marmaul. Yeah. Like how's he gonna? How is he going to lead them to play better, more detail oriented, fundamentally sound baseball? next year like I I don't know it kind of feels like once you lose that how do you get it back as a manager
0: yeah I I I, know I'm with you um and I don't know but I mean this this team looks terrible I mean they look terrible and I feel like even with the caveat of we know it's not a good team and we know that they you know wave the white flag at the trade deadline it still looks terrible to me and it looks badly managed But at the same time, like, I don't know, you know, like, I mean, there's like, he has played Taylor Motter at shortstop, but he's kind of played Taylor Motter at shortstop because there's days where like, that's the, like, that's what's on his roster. You know what I mean? And like, you know, like somebody else got injured and like, that's literally who he has to play shortstop. So, you know, like there's, there's things that he's sort of had to do because like, those are the cards he's been dealt. But like, I feel like you have to cut him every single break to have it even be like, uh, you know, any kind of an argument for bringing him back. And I I literally see nothing in his favor, um, you know, no, no checks in his favor. And um, there's just nothing, there's nothing we can see on the field that's positive. But again, it's true with the manager, like it's true for the coaches. There's so much that we don't see. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, um, you know, if there's stuff behind the scenes that, they feel is very positive and they being the front office and they being the players you know um who knows just like with uh you know with schilt i mean there was stuff that they felt was very negative that was behind the scenes and he was gone and we didn't see that coming so i don't know but i mean i i have not enjoyed watching this it seems hard for me to imagine he's going to come back so i'm kind of with you ben
1: um on that um, yeah, I, so that that's what I'm going to be watching is just kind of the tenor of the media coverage of the team, and if if it feels like maybe there's something changing underneath Marmol's feet, so that's what I'm looking for. What about you, Ben? Uh,
0: I am going to be watching um, just how they manage uh, Mason Win's uh, plate appearances. Um, uh, you know, they uh, they did. You know, for the last uh, couple shows, I think I mentioned I was going to be watching when they brought him up um, to see if they brought him up after the, the point where he would maintain his rookie eligibility for next year, which would maintain his ability to win the rookie of the year next year, which would maintain the Cardinals ability to get those uh, draft pick compensation. They did that, but um, it's it, it's beyond just uh, the the days on the roster. There is also a cap on his number of plate appearances. I want to say it's 130 I should have written it down before we started recording Um, but it's 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 less than full time play it's still like quite a bit of play, but um, it's it it will be kind of clearly managed if they're keeping him under that, and I think they will be Um, so you know they're they're doing a little bit of uh, service time, you know. um, Massaging. I don't know if we're going to call it manipulation. Ben, I'm going to call it massaging here with Mason when at the end of the season. But, um, you know, it's it's preserving some some really um, val- a lot of value for them going forward. So I think from the organization standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm just gonna, you know, keep a, keep an eye on that going forward. Um, uh, do you have an off day recommendation for folks?
1: Um, I I do. Um, my. Off day recommendation is the HBO series Winning Time about the Los Angeles Lakers of the 1980s. Uh, it has John C. Riley uh, as the owner, Jerry Buss, uh, and some very good other performances. Uh, Adrian Brody uh, plays Pat Riley and I think does it extremely well. Um, and, you know, this is uh, a series that kind of captures a, a team uh, that I was probably too young to appreciate um, when they were playing in real life, but it's a really interesting story. And, and I should also add, I'm shortchanging the staff. Uh, Quincy Isaiah's Magic Johnson is really great. Like really great. Uh, and I also really enjoy Jason Clark as Jerry West. Um, and, and the whole thing is just, Uh, there's a lot of humor, um, but there's also some really good drama, uh, and character stuff as well. And I really enjoy it. Uh, and the guy who plays Larry bird, I don't know who it is, but he's really great too. Uh, not a huge role, but just like a very good antagonist, uh, for the Lakers. Um, and I really have enjoyed this show. And, uh, if you're looking for a change of pace, uh, the nineteen, the early 1980s Los Angeles Lakers are about as far from the 2023 St. Louis Cardinals as you can get. So <laughs> um, a, a lot of fun to check out, uh, uh, a drama with comedy based on them. And I, I encourage our folks to check that show out if you haven't yet. No one has described the Oliver Marmol
0: Cardinals as showtime, is what you're saying. Um, yeah. Uh... <laughs> no uh my my recommendation is uh the the band the baseball project and uh as as folks are listening to this Um, I should um, uh, actually be on my way back from uh, Pittsburgh, where I have traveled to see The Baseball Project uh, play a show, which I'm very excited about. Um, If you're not familiar with The Baseball Project, they're a a, a super group of musicians, uh, including uh, Peter Buck and Mike Mills uh, from REM. Um, They've recorded uh, four albums over the last, um, uh, gosh, I think 2007 was their first one. Um, So they just get together periodically. And they record these albums where all of the songs are about baseball, um, but they're um, they're like really good like rock music too because they're all really good musicians. So they're just they're a ton of fun to listen to if you're if you're a baseball fan. And uh, they just recorded a, a new one and did kind of a short tour. So um, I uh, uh, you know decided to travel to Pittsburgh where I could catch both a Cardinals game and a Baseball Project concert. So um, uh, but I wanted to mention the band for anybody who hasn't uh, checked them out. I think if you're a, a fan of that kind of music and a fan of baseball uh, you will definitely enjoy them
1: all well right. i'm gonna to have to check them out you you have talked to them uh talked to me about them before but i i have to confess i've not yet listened and you have convinced me now i'm gonna do it
0: all right well good good so we accomplished something here today ben uh, anything else before we wrap things up
1: uh, nope. I hope everyone's enjoying the the end of their summers, uh, even if the Cardinals aren't enjoying the end of theirs.
0: I do as well, um, and we appreciate folks, uh, you know, joining us. And we will be back with you again on the next Cardinals Off Day. Go Carl.